If you will, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We are in a series of studies on the subject of submission. Submission in various areas of life and citizenry and the home and the family. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter gives various ways, beginning in verse 11, that you and I can show our light, the light of Christ, to those who don't know Christ. In 1 Peter 2.11, the Word of God says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, aliens and strangers, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct, your behavior, your, your life uh, among the Gentiles, uh, among unbelievers, excellent or honorable, so that when they speak slander or when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." I had mentioned to you before that that idea of glorifying God on the day of visitation probably most properly in this context means not just when they go to see the Lord to give an account for their lives, but when they see your excellent behavior, when they see your conduct, they will be drawn to Christ when Christ visits them because they've seen through the power of your Christian life and lips an opportunity to receive Christ as Savior and Lord, when God visits them in salvation. Won't heaven be a wonderful thing when people give praise and testimony of the powerful witness of believers on earth who told those Christians who became Christians as a result of your witness or my witness. I came to Christ as a result of a person who was a noble citizen of a country. They lived out their Christianity as someone who was very, very excellent in their behavior as they lived as a citizen in the place in which they dwelt. Or perhaps someone says, I'm in heaven through the grand providence of God because someone was living out such excellent behavior, such a submissiveness, and it happened through what Peter says here in verse 13 toward that government. What does he say? He says, 1 Peter 2.13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to the praise of those who do good or right. Peter says, for this is the will of God, that by doing right or doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, foolish men, unbelievers, pagans, idolaters, those who are worshiping themselves or worshiping themselves and something else. And when you come along and you live a submissive 
Christ-like life as a citizen of your country, they stand up and take notice. And when they see your good deeds, when they see your excellent behavior, it puts to silence their ignorant and foolish lives. And when God visits them in salvation, he's doing so through the very impact of your life upon them as they see you responding in ways they don't have the capacity to respond. This is is why Peter goes on to say here in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a covering or a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. Honor everyone, verse 17 says, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, honor the emperor. And you remember I told you that undoubtedly, as Peter writes these words in 1 Peter, it's under the regime of none other than Nero, a wicked ruler. And yet they're called upon to do all that they can within the power of the Spirit of God in their lives to live in such a way that they're different from others who are reacting against their government in such a way that they could be classified as evildoers. And yet here are these Christians, not evildoers. They're trying to honor everyone. They're trying to love the brotherhood, that is, love your fellow citizens, fear God, and to honor the king in whatever way you possibly can. Now, sometimes it's going to be impossible. Sometimes you're going to have to resist. Sometimes the government will tell you expressly to do something against what God has commanded. You're going to have to resist. But outside of those limited cases, the Word of God tells us that we are to be submissive. You remember I told you that that word to submit is the idea in the present tense form of it that we are to be continually submissive, submitting ourselves to these various forms of leadership over us. And it's not only the government. Remember last time, verse 18, slaves or servants perhaps, translated in your Bibles, be subject, again, continually, every moment of your life, be subject to your masters. Maybe a close Equivalent could be something, at least in our context, by way of application, your employer. With all respect, Peter says. All respect. That's one of those 100% words. All respect. Not only to the good and gentle, that means a Christian boss, a Christian employer, but also to the unjust. And that's where we pick up our exposition this morning. The command is to submit to your employer. But there's also a context, a context. And what is that context? Look at that latter part again of verse 18. You've got two options there. You are to be subject to your masters with all respect, and then it gives us a context. And there are only two, not only to the good and gentle, that means believing bosses, but also to the unjust, or maybe your Bible says the unreasonable. So that's our context. I mean, he follows a command to submit ourselves to the government that is over us by also a submission to my earthly Lord, my earthly master, my employer. And by the way, that 
phrase there in the Greek text, the idea of scolios, crooked. That's where we get the word scoliosis, crooked spine. This is, this is interesting, not only to a good and gentle, not only to a Christian boss, but also to the one who is unjust, who's crooked. Now again, the nuance of how you respond to this, if your crooked boss asks you to do something as a crooked thing in your work that you know is against the principles of the Word of God, you can't do it. You can't do it. Maybe even suffering a firing at the hand of such an unjust boss because he's asking you to do things that you know in good conscience would violate the Word of God. But barring something like that, this passage tells us that we'll have one of two options. Uh, Perhaps uh, you might be given the responsibility to uh, be an employee to someone who's over you who's in the Lord. Well, praise God for that. Maybe even as a brother master and a brother servant, you can have rich fellowship together, you can pray together, you can talk together of the Lord. Uh, Maybe he's going to give you that freedom. Maybe she's going to say that's quite all right. Um, Even if that's not taking place in the workforce, in the workplace during the day, uh, perhaps you can have rich fellowship afterwards with your boss, uh, with someone who works for you. Perhaps you even attend church together. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Where you see your boss living out his Christianity in the church relationship to you. Uh, maybe that boss sees that, that person who works for him or her, and, and you are together in the same Christian fellowship. What a joy. What a wonderful thing that would be. But perhaps, and this might be in the vast majority of the category, you're with someone who, as a worker, as a non-Christian boss, non-Christian by far, non-Christian to the max, someone who you might even say as a believing person as you sit here today is someone who you have utterly no respect for, the way they carry themselves, the way they talk, what they demand of you. And again, outside of that that qualification about trying to force you to do something that you know God would have you say no to, uh, apart from something like that, you may have a boss for whom you say that person, that man or that woman, seems to be vile and wretched in their moral life. Uh, They seem not to love Christ, far from it. They seem to be someone who has no moral moorings at all. Or perhaps they may look or sound good uh, at the workplace, but I know a little bit more. I've seen that person in a social context. Or perhaps that person even in the job is saying and doing things which would be opposite of that which you would see for your own Christian lifestyle. Whatever the case, however good or bad, there's no qualifier here. It just says uh, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable or unjust. Crooked, crooked in some ways. Um, Maybe this, with the majority of you, gives you the opportunity, even over against the minority who might have a Christian boss, the greatest opportunity. The greatest opportunity. 
Oh, I know I just said, hey, if you had a Christian boss, if you had someone who you dearly loved and they knew you loved Christ and they love you for that and uh, they don't allow you to cut corners, you got to still do your job. You still got to do the right thing when you're at work. But perhaps because of that bond of Christ between you, you are so thankful that you have someone like that. Or perhaps you're the boss and you're a Christian. And perhaps you have those under you, some of them Christians, and even though you want as a Christian boss to treat everybody the same, you know in your heart that because of some of those employees whom you know and love, and maybe you do have fellowship with them at the church, or maybe you go to different churches, and, and yet you have a special love in your heart for them because you know they're trying to do everything they can for Christ. Or perhaps you have that wicked boss. You have that boss that you might be looking at in your heart and saying, he's not what he should be. She's not what she should be. But instead of focusing all of your efforts on them, perhaps the vast majority of your effort, your life, your focus should be on how do I represent Jesus Christ to this person? Who is Christ to them through watching my life, my testimony. Perhaps they've heard that you're a Christian. Maybe you don't have enough interaction with those up the line, but maybe your direct supervisor or maybe a couple of rungs of the ladder upward, uh, uh, maybe they haven't heard uh, about your profession of Christ, and uh, maybe they don't know everything about you, but they seem to think about you as a kind and decent person. They see consistency in your life. And perhaps even if you can't do it at work, talk about Christ, evangelize them, speak a word of the gospel, perhaps you would think and pray through ways that you could have some off time with them, talking with them about the Lord, giving them your testimony of how Christ saved you and how committed you are in your work to doing the right things and being the right kind of person. You say, well, that's tough. That's really tough. And I know some of you may be the owners of your own business uh, in the sense that you only work for yourself. You're you're the, the only employer and employee all at the same time. Or perhaps you're retired. You've gone through the workforce and you're on the other side of that. You're no longer working for anyone. Whatever situation, whatever station in life you might find yourself... Peter has a, has a word, and his word is, the context is you either have a Christian boss or you don't, and it's all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. It's all about both how you live and also what you say with your lips. And perhaps if it's not the best thing uh, to be working and talking about the gospel at the same time because you're being paid there to work, so you work. If you have latitude to do that, then praise God. If you don't, then work and do your work to the glory of God so that when you're doing your work to the glory of God, they're going to see a person in you who will be a person of influence and impact in their lives. And perhaps if God in his providence brings an opportunity for conversation between you and fellow employees or your employer, then you can also speak a word of the gospel. 
And then when you speak a word of the gospel and it matches with your living a life that's commensurate with the gospel, then you've got a double-barreled opportunity to show them who Jesus Christ really is and what he's done in your life. You can do both of these. You can work for a Christian boss if God in his providence gives that to you, but you can also work with someone who's unjust and unreasonable. The reason I know that is because it says it right here. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, to the unreasonable. It can be done. So whatever context you find yourself, it's still that consistent living out of the command to be submissive, be subject. And then thirdly, let's call it the character, the character of one who submits to their employer. Look at verses 19 and 20. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning on that, and we'll pick up the last outline point next time, verses 21 to 25. I want to look at verses 19 and 20 this morning because this is so important. This uh, begins to elucidate, to explain, to sort of illustrate what he means by not only working for those who might be a good and gentle boss, but also to someone who might be unreasonable or unjust. Notice the word for, for in verse 19. It's kind of a connector word. It's a, a word that ties right back to the kind of boss you have in whatever context you find yourself. And if you have one of those unreasonable bosses, You can actually discover, believe it or not, according to verses 19 and 20, the favor of God, the grace of God, by continuing to bear up underneath some unjust suffering given to you by that unreasonable boss. Look at verse 19. For, this is an explanation of how in the context of of working for someone unreasonable, this is how you can do it. Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. What's a gracious thing? He's emphasizing this idea of the unreasonable boss. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows, notice the plural, not just sorrow, but sorrows, while suffering unjustly. I mean, it stands to reason. If you work for an unjust boss, there may be a time or two, or maybe somewhat regularly, where an unjust boss is going to be unjust toward you. It's going to be unreasonable. Now, again, if he asks you to do something that you know the Word of God commands you, you cannot do that, or you should do that, that and he's trying to prohibit you from doing that, whatever it is, and boy, that's a boatload of illustrations. We, we could be here for hours, and I could be fielding questions, and you could be saying, but what about... And I had this situation where, and you don't quite understand because he, and when she said, boy, we could talk about those forever. And you know that the comprehensiveness of God's word will probably, undoubtedly, in some portion of God's word, take care of the answers to those particular questions. But here, in shorthand version, without a lot of qualifiers and without a lot of nuancing, it says this, for considering the idea of you having an unreasonable or an unjust boss, this is a gracious thing. And someone automatic will say, wait a minute, that's a gracious thing? 
No, I've been saying forever and a day in my workplace there for the last 20 years, that's not gracious. That ain't right. That's not good. Peter says, I beg to differ. It is a gracious thing that God has brought about in his providence. Because when you are under that unreasonable boss, it's gracious when you have a mind for God. Notice that phrase, mindful of God. Your focus is looking through your earthly boss to your heavenly one. It's not easy. I grant you that. It's not easy. How can I look through the portals of this unjust boss, this unreasonable person, to see my heavenly Lord? If I see this earthly master, this Lord, sometimes that's all I can see. I I can't see through it. I can't see through how to be reasonable in the midst of that person's unreasoning. I I can't see how to be just and good uh, through the focus of what he's doing, what she's saying, so that I'm looking at my heavenly Lord and saying, you've given me a phenomenal opportunity. You've given me such a gracious thing in this boss, this total reprobate. You've given me this, this tremendous providential opportunity, and I want to take full advantage of it, Lord. How, how many of us, as a regular practice, say things like that? How many of us in the workforce, in the work world, would say, Lord, I cannot thank you enough for that most unreasonable pagan boss of mine? Thank you so much. Well, Peter wants to challenge our minds to be mindful of God and to see it as potentially, if not in reality, a gracious thing. You say, why? What's the motivation behind it? What's the goal? I say to you, the gospel. The gospel. Do you think with Nero as the emperor... And with these people who are coming out of Gentile, pagan, non-Christian backgrounds, serving multiple deities and uh, doing all kinds of wretched, wicked kind of religious things in their so-called worship, and then somebody shares the gospel with them and some of these dear people, and by the way, they're all being spread about. If you looked at 1 Peter 1, 1 and following, you're going to find that there's all kinds of people groups and they're sort of going all around and they're being dispersed because as Christians, they're being persecuted. And as they're persecuted, they're going to other lands. They're going to other places. Where can I find food? Where can we raise our family? Where can we have hope? Where's God going to lead us? Where are we going to go? You find yourself in pagan territory. You've got you to eat. You've got to have food. You've you got to feed your family. So you find yourself in a situation in which you've got Nero, who's got this Roman oppression just, just shuddering down upon you, And you're in this place that's not your own hometown, it's not with your own people, and you've been persecuted and you've been pushed somewhere else, and you now find yourself in need of that bread for your table, for your family, for yourself, and someone says, I'll give you work. Here's what I want you to do. I'll give you a day's wage for this. 
and you say, I'll do it. And then that boss is found out to be by, for, by you to be someone who you say, this man is unjust and unreasonable. He, he's not too many clicks off from Nero himself, it seems. What am I going to do? And Peter says, you got a great opportunity. you got a tremendous opportunity here. It's a gracious thing when being mindful of looking through the focus of the unreasonable boss to the God above, the, the Lord above, you're enduring a blow of sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's okay. That's okay. By the way, you remember, you remember Joseph? Let's, let's turn over to Joseph, uh, Joseph's story in Genesis 39. This is, this is going to be good. Now, there's not absolutely striking parallels between all of this, but this is a great illustration. And I could give you illustrations of people at their work now and what they're doing, and I could have someone come up and give a a testimony about how they were working with an unjust boss, and here's what I did, and here's what possibly you can do. And you'd say, wow, that's sort of a living, breathing person who, who told me, you can do this, you can do this. You know why I like to give uh, illustrations from the Bible? Because when you're giving illustrations from the Bible, you're teaching the Bible at the same time. Ever notice that? You, you give an illustration out of the Bible, which means that you're also teaching the Bible at the same time. So look at Genesis 39. You know the story of Joseph, most of you. Uh, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. He'd been uh, given, sold by his brothers, just a wicked thing to do, to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, 39, uh, Genesis 39.1, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, uh, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And I want you to notice something about the providence of God. Everything in Genesis 39 to 50 is about the providence of God. And the providence of God is manifesting itself in verse 2, and please don't miss it. The Lord was what? With Joseph. Do you think he's with you in your work? Do you think he's with you at, at, the, at the place where you work? Do you, you think the Lord's there? You know the Lord's there because he's in you. He's with you. And the Lord was with Joseph. And Joseph became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. You say, well, yeah, yeah, this is great. This is a wonderful story. Don't forget, Joseph's out of his home. He's out of his element. He'd been sold, sold by his own brothers. Terrible sins, wickedness against him. He's not, he's not even with his beloved father. He doesn't even have the opportunity to see his youngest brother, Benjamin. He, 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 he's not like getting all these blessings just because the Lord was with him as though everything's going to turn up roses. I mean, he goes from the pit to the palace, someone might say. From the pit to the penthouse. I mean, he becomes the, the prime minister of Egypt. There, there was only one person ahead of him in charge, the very king, the very pharaoh himself. Uh, uh, what do you mean it was, was not a bad thing? It was a great thing. He wasn't with his dad. He wasn't even with his brothers. You say, boy, isn't that good? They'd probably try to do something else. He loved his brothers. He loved Benjamin, the youngest. 
And from Genesis 39 to 50, you've got a whole bunch of examples of how Joseph works toward getting his whole family to where he is, even if he can't go back to where they are. Why? Because he knows there's going to be this big famine. And he knows a lot of people are going to die, going to die of malnourishment. And he wants to get his people over there. And not just his family, but the Israelites in general. And he wants to get them over there. And so he's trusting God, and he's praying to God, and he wants God's blessing. And it says, the Lord was with him. But there's going to be a few bumps in the road, aren't there? Okay, he's working for, for Potiphar. His wife's involved, and Potiphar said, you can touch anything in my household. And when you think of just a household, I think it was like an estate, right? You ever seen these big places where it's not just what's happening in the headquarters, it was all the stuff around it. It's, it's like a business. It's, in fact, the idea of Joseph being in charge is a word out of which in Greek we get the word stewardship. Stewardship. He was the steward. He was in charge of, of everything except what? Potiphar's wife. Don't touch her. Don't, don't do that. Don't violate me. You're in charge of everything, but don't touch her. And, of course, she's got different ideas, right? She wants to lay with him. She wants to be with him. And if you, if you see this, you know, look at verse 19. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoken to him, what did she do? She tried to, to lie with Joseph, and he wouldn't have it. And he ran out of his coat because he was a man of integrity. He was trying to do the right thing. This is the way your servant treated me. And she's lying about it. Joseph didn't do that. And his anger was kindled, Potiphar. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord, notice this again, verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were there in prison Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. You say, well, man, I'd like that. I'd like to be in that position. I'd like to be in that situation where everywhere you went, every job you had, the Lord was with you, and the Lord made it prosper, and the Lord made you succeed. And I'd say, yeah, well, I'd like that too. The only problem was there's a whole bunch of detours along the way. And by the way, Joseph's a young man. He's good looking. He's handsome. And he looked the part. He was a great leader. It wasn't that God just took somebody who didn't have the human abilities and gifts and talents that God had also bestowed upon him. But the bottom line was this, before you get to be number two in charge, prison awaits. And you know, even in the story, remember the baker and the cupbearer and all of that? And you remember, there's a little line in one of these verses, and it says this, and Joseph was forgotten. Just forgotten. And I can hear it, I can hear it. That isn't fair. He's doing the Lord's work. And you might be saying, look, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not only just trying to do an honest wage for an honest work, 
But I do want to live for Christ. I, I do want to show myself as a gospeler, as someone who's projecting the gospel through my life and my lips. Yeah, I want to do that. But it seems as though when I try, I get beaten down, I get knocked down, I get demoted, I get this, I get that. Hey, look at the big picture. Look at the long road. You know, it's true what my wife and I said about parenting when we first started. Boy, this is a marathon, not a sprint. So is your job. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And wherever you find yourself, Peter's telling us, like that illustration with Joseph, the Lord is with you, which means that can be a tremendous comfort to you in your job. The Lord's with me. The Lord's Lord's providentially working through my life. And he wants me to follow his principles. That's why I can see this as a gracious thing. That's why I can see this if I'm mindful of God, even if I'm enduring sorrows when suffering unjustly. Do you know that this is, this is an opportunity for you and I to learn as persons, Christian persons, how to bear up underneath trials, even trials at work. Do you see the idea of endurance there? One endures or bears up sorrows while suffering unjustly? That idea of bearing up means that you and I have a tremendous amount of weight, weight, heaviness that continues through these sorrows to weigh us down. And the idea of bearing up is that you and I are enduring underneath the tremendous weight of these sorrow burdens. No one said it would be easy. No one said it would be a lark in the park. No one said that you are being treated with kid gloves. I mean, you probably can say it even far better than than I could. That work world out there, it's just at times downright diabolical. Guess what? It is because Satan, at the same time that you're trying to bear up under those sorrows when being treated unjustly, is trying to destroy your Christian witness. He's trying to so tempt you to solicit you to do evil in your job, to cut corners, to do what the Bible says not to do, to go where the Bible says not to go, so that your Christian witness would be so tattered and fraught with inconsistencies and downright cutting of corners that you have your Christianity, or so it seems, destroyed in the eyes of the watching workers. So while you are mindful of God, while you are seeing what God expects of you by doing this gracious thing of bearing up underneath the weight of these sorrows while you're suffering unjustly, at the same time you're attempting to do that, Satan is all about tempting you to compromise through and through. You see, you want to talk about stuff that doesn't seem fair. I mean, 
I'm trying to bear up under my sorrows. I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to be that Christian gentleman, that Christian lady who is exposing others to the gospel of my life and my lips. And you're telling me that I also have Satan who's attempting to trash my reputation? Well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, nobody said it was. Look over in Ephesians chapter 6 again. And we'll do our best to see what some of these things are that are happening in our jobs. These are these parallel passages that I read last time, and these are very, very important. Look at chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians, beginning in verse 5. Bond slaves, bond servants, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. We talked about that last time. And then please notice this phrase, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Remember, you're looking through your earthly boss to Christ, your heavenly boss. You're you're, you're looking at him primarily. It's not as though you're not looking at your earthly boss, but you're looking through him or her to Christ with a sincere heart. And notice verse 6, not by way of eye service. What does that mean? Not to just be working when the boss is looking. Not being a people pleaser. I'm just, I'm just sort of doing what I do so that people will think that I'm doing this, but my heart's not really in it. I'm not really sincere. I'm just doing it because I'm a people pleaser at heart. But you're supposed to be doing it as a slave of Christ. And then here's that phrase again that's used in 1 Peter 2, doing the will of God, the will of God, from the heart. And what kind of service are you rendering? Verse 7, rendering service with a good will. You might translate that a good disposition, a good attitude as to the Lord and not to man, not ultimately to man. You say, well, wait a minute, I thought you said I'm supposed to sort of commend my work and my life and my lips to the gospel so that that man could be saved, so that my co-workers could see that. Yes, but not ultimately so, because you're doing everything you're doing for Christ, and he will determine who is influenced for the gospel of Christ, right? You're just doing it in general. You're just hoping it splashes over to everybody, but if it doesn't, or if it's just one, or if it wasn't that company, it's another, or wherever you work, whatever your career is, Only heaven will know the influence and the impact of who you are and what you did for the sake of the kingdom as you were a worker for the glory of Jesus Christ, right? And when it says that you are knowing, verse 8, that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's slave or free, you can say this, Lord... I'm just going to work for the glory of God. I'm going to influence people for Christ in whatever way I can, and you'll determine the results. But I know this, whatever you do determine, what I'm going to receive back is what you want me to receive, what you want me to have. You're going to bless me. Are there going to be sorrows? Yes. Are are you going to be roundly criticized at times? Yes. Are you going to be even potentially like Joseph, falsely accused? Yes. Yes but you will receive back from the Lord. Aren't you glad he's in control? 
Aren't you glad he's in charge of the whole issue of the work life of a person? And then if there are even, even Christian bosses, if, if you own a company, if you've got employees under you, look at verse 9, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours, referring to Christ, who is in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. Do your work, even as the boss, even as the employer. Do your work. Do it well. Look over at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, same ideas. Very, very critical to understand. This is is a series of New Testament principles that probably aren't often emphasized but should be. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Bond slaves, bond servants, workers, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Notice that 100% word again, everything. Not by way of eye service, not, not just when the boss is looking, as people pleasers, same idea as Ephesians 6, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And that's what Peter says, fear the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily from the heart as for the Lord and not for men. Why? Because ultimately it is for the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Why? Because you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there's no partiality. In other words, whatever that boss does, whatever wickedness he does toward you, you don't have to worry about those things. The Lord will be in charge. He will deal with these things. And then I love verse 20 as we close. 1 Peter chapter 2, it's saying basically the same thing from from another perspective. For what credit is there if when you sin and are beaten for it, in other words, you're, you're suffering, but not for what you did right, but for actually what you did wrong and what the Bible calls here sin. For what credit, uh, what, um, what accrues to your account? And the rhetorical answer is nothing. What credit is there if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So here, you, here you've got a person who is enduring because they're suffering unjustly. They have all kinds of credit. A whole bunch of credits being accrued to them because they're righteous and they want to be a a, a stalwart for the gospel of Christ, and like Joseph, they're beaten for it, they're accused uh, of malfeasance, They're, 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 they're being someone who is righteous but being considered unrighteous for whatever reasons and for whatever motives, but when someone suffers like that and they're bearing up under the weight of all of these sorrows of being unjustly treated, they bear it and there's a whole ton of credit coming their way. Even, my friends, if that credit doesn't accrue to them in this life. Now, someone says, that's what I don't like. Because I want that boss, I want my coworkers, I want everybody else to know that I was treated unjustly. It wasn't fair, it wasn't right, it wasn't best. Well, you've got a heavenly master 
And he accrues things both here and in the hereafter, and he'll determine how and who and when and why. All of this will be ferreted out. The unjust will get their desserts, the just will get their desserts, and sometimes even that which you are harshly treated in this life will not be recompensed until the life to come. But if you walk around and you say, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, I love the Lord. Yeah, I want everybody to know it. And then you're pilfering the petty cash. Or you talk like a drunken sailor, as they say. Or, and I could give you a thousand examples, right? And then someone says, wait a minute. Hey, I'm out at lunch with you, and we were talking, and you were talking about things with sexual innuendo, and you had a dirty mouth, and uh, I saw you pilfering the petty cat, and you say you're a Christian? I thought that the people who were Christians were the people who don't do those kinds of things. Isn't that what your Bible tells you? And then the guy turns around and says, hey, guess what? I'm in my Bible study, and I'm with my Bible study folks, and I tell them, I am suffering so unjustly at work. It's unbelievable. Could you guys pray for me? If you would pray for me so that I would not bear up under these sorrows so unjustly, but that I would be recompensed in the right way and in the fair way and in a way that only is deserving for me. Now, what do you think your heavenly Lord is thinking? What do you think he's going to do? No credit. For what credit is there if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good, righteous things, holy things, Christian things, and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. Gracious thing in the sight of God. Gracious. Grace. Gospel grace, sanctifying grace, sustaining grace. Do you know that if you are suffering unjustly, especially in the context of your work, that God is keeping a tab on everything? He knows what you're suffering. He knows how you're being mistreated. He knows that. He's your your heavenly boss. He knows all of that. And he knows it even far better than you and I do, even as the worker. And when he does, he will deal with all things in a perfect way. You and I don't have to worry about it. We're going to get credit and grace when we're suffering unjustly. And when you get credit and grace, you'll get the grace for the here and now, and you'll get the credit accruing throughout all eternity. Boy, isn't it better just to do the right thing? Isn't it just better to be the right person? You say, well, I'm a sinner through and through, and even though I have the Holy Spirit in my life, I still mess up, and so what do you do? Well, you do it in your home, you do it at your work, you do it in the church, just like you should do it everywhere, and that is, hey, I messed up. Will you please forgive me? You say, well, that, that, might, that might cause me to lose my job. You think God's in charge of getting jobs? If someone fires you for one false move, God has another job. And you learn from that one and you move on. And then you work at this job and you say, I don't want to repeat any past mistakes. I want to be a person in my life who has the pattern of my life 
is a person who can be counted upon, who has integrity, and who is serving the Lord, not mere men. And all of these biblical principles, as they come to us, will actually come in the next outline point in verses 21 to 25. For you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He's the ultimate example. He's the one who's going to show us how to do it. I can't wait to find out what he did and how he did it. Let's pray together. Father, this is one of those stepping on toes sermon. For me and for others, because we want to be those workers in your kingdom who are working in such a way that the gospel is on display. Well, we don't want to be those who the gospel is being questioned. The, the veracity of the truth of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is being questioned because I say I'm a Christian, I say I'm a Christ follower, and yet my life is a shambles spiritually. I'm a thief, I'm a, a robber, I'm a swearer, I'm an inconsistent, non-punctual person who doesn't show up on time, who doesn't know the work that's required of him. How am I commending the gospel? How is it that my testimony will bear fruit in the day of visitation? Oh, Lord, please forgive me. Forgive me for only working when the boss is looking. Forgive me when I'm a pilferer. Forgive me when I say the wrong things and I dishonor the Lord Jesus, the one who died even for my selfishly inconsistent life. And I pray that even for workers tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock, that we would ask you for grace and credit, even if we are suffering unjustly. And if we're trying to get grace and credit when we're sinning and then calling it unfair, we just need to ask you for forgiveness right now and ask you to please allow us to make amends, to talk to our boss, to talk to our co-workers, to acknowledge to them, I haven't been the right representative I need to be, not only for my earthly boss, but for my heavenly one. Oh, Lord, give us an entree to the gospel by doing a fair day's work for a fair day's wage. And let us be mindful of you even when we are mistreated misunderstood as Christians. May we submit, whether we've got a saved boss or not, and may we do the things that you call us to do to be a witness for Jesus Christ in this world, especially from our workplace. May you be honored as we work for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.